is Idol Australians with James Madison and Osher Ginsberg. Exploring the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture. There you are, James. We have a new theme song. There's a voiceover. How do you feel? It's like an actual show. It's like an actual show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has elements similar to shows. <laughs> that's And that's Bruce Steele, our producer. So, you know, she's the one who says, this is, you're listening to Triple J. And we got her to do our thing, which is great. There you go. What a legend. I mean- it only took us, you know, 11 apps. That's great. Slowly building elements of professionalism and yeah. slickness. And I think my whole career, nay, my whole life has really just been that scene from Wallace and Gromit where as the train is hurtling down the track, I'm frantically putting the pieces of train track in front of the engine <laughs> as life just devastatingly stops. <laughs> is, there, is there another way? No. Is there any other way? I don't know. I think you can you can plan the whole train track, and then when it think, goes a different direction, you don't know what what to do. Hey, Jimmy, what's special about the third of June? Obviously, besides being Tracy Grimshaw's birthday, which you no doubt knew already. Of course, already shopping for uh, a present for Grimmers. Not far away now. Might get us some Peter Alexander pajamas. That's the way. It's a gift that just never fails. Mm-hmm. That one, like. You are on the money 100%. No one's going to say, I don't want these pyjamas. No one's ever said that to me. No one who I've ever given Peter Alexander pyjamas to has said, nah, nah, I'm not really into pyjamas or sleepwear. You can give them to your wife, your mum, your sister, your mistress. You can give them to anyone. And they'll all be like, oh, that's nice. Because it's not overly intimate, but at the same time, it's personal. It's a gift you could give to a female co-worker that you are mm-hmm. friends with and no one would go, oh, that's a bit weird. Like, no, it's just pyjamas. That's lovely. It's Peter Alexander. So, yeah, Grimmer's birthday's coming. We should get the Peter from Peter Alexander on the show. I'm writing it down right now. Peter from Peter Alexander. Is that Alexander. a real person or is that like Harvey Norman? Like, it's the, it's the conglomeration of two separate people. Ernst and Young. Um, look, besides being Tracy Grimshaw's favourite day of the year when she receives a, pe- a, you know, like a lovely sleepwear set from you, James Matheson, it's Marbo Day. It is the day in 1992 that six out of seven, six of the seven High Court judges ruled that the lands of this continent were not terra nullius or land belonging to no one when European settlement occurred. Now, a lot of people m- may have only heard about the Marbo case from this very famous moment in the classic Australian film, The Castle. What section of the Constitution has been breached? Section? What, what section? There is no one section. It's just the vibe of the thing. It's all part of it. This is what I'm getting at. That's my point. It's the, it's the vibe of it. Again, it's the Constitution, it's Marbo, it's justice, it's law, it's the vibe, and uh, no, that's it, it's the vibe. I rest my case. That was sensational. (laughs) That's still funny. (laughs) 
that that is one of the great comedic performances in Australian cinematic history. Dennis DeNudo, the world, the greatest, <laughs> the greatest lawyer, who isn't a lawyer. I've I've read researching this. I've read that they show that piece in when people are preparing to go into court past the bar to go like this is why you need to be prepared when you go in. <laughs> he he's like Australia's Lionel Hutz. You know? <laughs> yes. This is my old friend Mister yes. McGreg with a leg for an arm and an arm for a leg. <laughs> What a great character Dennis was. Um, but, yeah, it's Marbo. Yeah. It's the vibe. So just a quick backstory if you uh, don't know. I promise this won't take too long. But in 1770, it was not Captain Cook who claimed Australia. It was Lieutenant Cook. He wasn't a captain until much, much later. He claimed all of uh, the east coast of Australia on behalf of Great Britain. He stuck a flag in a bit of sand which contrary to popular belief, that sand was not in Botany Bay. That sand was not in Sydney Harbour. He put his flag in the sand at Possession Island way, 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 way up in far north Queensland. That time in the world, if you stuck a flag in it, it was yours. Yeah. Didn't matter who'd owned it, no matter how many generations had come before, you stick a flag in it. Yeah. All yours. Piece of cloth. That's the rules. They were the rules. They were the rules. Nowadays, it's just the little ones that you get and that you shove it in a, in a small hors d'oeuvre to bags it. The flag rules have diminished somewhat. But back then, if you had a shiny, flappy piece of fabric, whole fucking continent, mate, just reach out. That mentality is so entrenched. When we went to another part of the solar system, <laughs> when we landed on another part of the universe that wasn't Earth, humans went, let's put a flag in it. So that is how attached we have become into putting a flag in stuff and claiming it as our own. Something that wasn't even on this planet, the Americans went, flag in it, that's ours. Oh, my God. So, yeah, he put the flag in it, and uh, contrary to other popular belief, he did not put the flag in it on the 26th of January. He put the flag in it on the 22nd of August in 1770. Now, it's important because terra nullius means that there's nobody here to sign a treaty with, so therefore it's ours. On the 22nd of August, the very day Lieutenant Cook stuck a flag in Possession Island, he wrote, and James, I'm going to have to apologise for some really awful language, Lieutenant Cook's diary from 1770. So I'm really sorry. I'm going to use a word that he used only to emote the view that he had of the people that lived there. This is Lieutenant Cook's uh, words. On the 22nd of August, 1770, the day he, he claimed Australia for Britain, we saw on all the adjacent lands and islands a great number of smooks, a certain sign that they are inhabited. He wrote it in his diary that there were people everywhere. Didn't stop him from claiming uh, the bays, the harbours, the rivers and the islands. And it was based on the concept of terra nullius, land of nobody, where Britain assumed that Aboriginal people did not have any form of political organisation and therefore no leaders with the authority to sign any treaties. Now, despite some movements that did try, like the Gove land rights case, which happened in 1971, and then the, the Wave Hill walk-off, which happened a little after that, native title was never recognised under Australian law until in 1982 when a group of um, five Merriam people whose homes uh, are in the Torres Strait 
Eddie Marbo, Reverend Dave Pussy, Sam Pussy, James Rice, and uh, Kaluuya Sale. They brought an action against the state of Queensland and the Commonwealth of Australia, claiming native title to the Murray Islands. It took 10 years. The Bjorki Peterson National Party government tried to pass another law that would preempt their case and retrospectively extinguish the land rights that they were trying to claim. That law was overturned by the Racial Discrimination Act. But, yeah, on the 3rd of June, six of the seven High Court judges ruled that the lands of this continent were not terra nullius or land belonging to no one when European settlement occurred and that the Merriam people were entitled as against the whole world to possession, occupation, use and enjoyment of the lands of the Murray Islands. And that inserted the legal doctrine of native title into Australian law. It was an enormous, enormous, enormous thing. Um, and, of course, James, as you know, once the Marbo case happened, everything was awesome. We solved colonisation's effect on First Nations people and everything was fine. Yeah, tickety-boo. On we go. <laughs> Next! If only it was that simple and only, and if only we had had that much progress since. But it was a momentous day. You had 200 years of precedent around ownership of this land was finally altered. It wasn't without pushback, whether it was farmers or miners or reactionary conservatives at the time, thinking that, you know, white people were going to be kicked off their land or lose their farm or not be able to mine or not be able to produce agriculture. There was a, there was a mm. fierce resistance at the time from many different camps and none more so than the Queensland government. He's since admitted he was wrong, but at the time, the Victorian Premier, Jeff Kennett, even claimed that Australian backyards were under threat from Aboriginal land claims. But it's such a momentous case, and, you know, this, this show is about the bits you might have missed from Australian history. We hear a lot about the Mabo case. Eddie Mabo is an incredible person. I thoroughly recommend you go and check out some of the lectures he gave at James Cook University in Townsville. He is an amazing speaker. It's very moving to watch him talk. But we don't really hear much about the barrister that fought the case. We don't really hear much about the Aaron Brockovich of the Marbo case, the man that went, yes, let's go. And Bree, our incredible producer, Bree Steele, has tracked him down, James. She is such a super sleuth and I'm so stoked that he's taking the time to speak with us before that. We thought it would be good to, to to speak with someone who, I guess, has a different perspective upon this case just by the nature of, of who he is. Stan Grant is an Aboriginal First Nation Australian man. His father was an elder of the Wiradjuri people, which is a country that stretches across New South Wales here in Australia from Wagga Wagga and Leeton in the, to West Wyalong Park, Stubbo Forbes, Cootamundra, Young, um, Stan's written a, a bunch of books. Um, I would thoroughly recommend Australia Day, which is an excellent, excellent read. Um, his other book, Talking to My Country, is fantastic. He's the ABC's Indigenous and International Affairs Analyst. He's also Professor of Global Affairs at Griffith University in Queensland, Australia. And um, he, he joins us now. Dan, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Do you remember, when did you first hear about the Marbo case? It started in 81. When did you first hear about it? There's, there's a real story to this. Um, I would have been, yeah, so it started in the early 80s and then I was working for the ABC because remember the, the Marbo case had been through the, 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 the courts in Queensland and then it, it had lost and lost and lost and appealed and appealed and appealed all the way to the High Court. Now, I remember in about 1987 there was a hearing in the High Court and uh, 
And I was on the editorial meeting that morning at the ABC, and I was working in Parliament House. And I said, "There's a uh, there's a court case listed today that, if it's successful, could ultimately change Australian history. That this this will be potentially the most significant High Court decision ever." And everyone was like, "Oh no, 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 it couldn't be." And I said, "Well, no, 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 it could be." And so I remember doing a story that day. That day, going down there, it was only just a uh, a brief hearing that day, but it was a chance to put it on the agenda and doing a story that, for the first time, um, really challenged the idea that Terra Nullius may be overturned. So, yeah, look, I, I, I became aware of it very early on in my career and immediately realised the importance of it and the potential significance of it. And when you started doing those first reports, was there slowly a trickle into the, the mainstream consciousness of just how powerful this could be? I don't think so. I think there was still probably, you know, it was still a second-order issue. It wasn't getting on the front pages. It was one of these sort of, you know, one of these quirky court cases that no one really thought would amount to much or that no one really thought would be successful. Because as I say, remember, it had been through the courts in Queensland and it failed. Previous cases had been taken to the High Court to establish the same principles and had failed. Um, Paul Coe, um, uh, one of, a cousin of mine, actually, um, uh, uh, when he was a young student, a law student at the time, took an action to the High Court on behalf of the Wiradjuri people, lay, may, making similar claims that, you know, uh, to, uh, to uh, challenge the nonsense of Terra Nullius. And there'd been other cases, but none of them had ever, had ever been successful. What was different this time? is that with Eddie Marbo, you had someone who could actually make a verifiable case that he was, you know, he was part of this lineage uninterrupted um, and that that land was his, was his inheritance and it had predated British settlement, it had survived it, and it continued in spite of it. Um, and I think because there was no disruption to that, then there was a real clarity to the case. Whereas, you know, in other cases that have been taken, particularly in the southern states, we'd been, we'd been dispossessed. We'd been, um, you know, our culture had been destroyed. We'd been dispersed. We weren't living necessarily on the same lands uninterrupted as our ancestors because we'd been pushed off them. So this was different, but I think at the time it was still considered one of those quirky cases and it wasn't until it ultimately was successful that people woke up to the full potential import of this. Nearly 30 years since the Mabo decision was handed down found six uh, to six to one in favour of the Mabo decision, so it's a pretty significant majority. Nearly 30 years on since native title was enshrined in Australian law, has it done what you think it could have done? What would you like to see? Look, it's it, 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 yes and no. You know, there's a myth, I think, um, that that Marbo overturned Terra Nullius. It revealed the folly of it, but it didn't necessarily overturn it, in that Terra Nullius still forms what is known as the skeleton of Australian law. Now, the, the skeleton of Australian law is based on the premise that there was no one here, no one had a legal claim 
to this to this land. Now that has still not been that idea has still not been challenged in terms of establishing the sovereignty of First Nations people. In fact, the High Court made uh, made it very clear. Justice Brennan made it very clear in the judgment where he said it is not within the court's capacity to shatter the skeleton of Australian law. Here's the paradox. If the court, in fact, acknowledged the illegitimacy of settlement and, and shattered the skeleton of that law, which came from a ruling of the, the British Privy Council in the 1840s, that this was, uh, this, this was essentially terra nullius. If, if it shattered that, the court would cease to exist. You know, the court could not make a ruling that renders the court illegitimate. But what it did is that it said that within British law, the concept of native title existed, that British law itself could recognise that native title was real. It's a very complex landscape that emerges from Mabo. British law acknowledges that native title preceded, coexists and continues to exist. Um, it, it, it recognised the sort of folly of native of, of terra nullius without actually overturning it, and it presented a still unfulfilled challenge to Australian politics to deliver a real political architecture that supports the potential of that ruling. We haven't we haven't managed to do that. Do you think, in some ways, though, the the, the power of it was that it put a dent in that overriding mindset that most people had around what sort of country we are? Precisely. You are absolutely right. It said to us that we can dispense with this nonsense about an Australia that is only two centuries old. We can dispense with this nonsense about, you know, that we are, you know, a, a, a young nation. Um, you know, we, we are, we are, you know, for, for we are young and free, all of that nonsense. You know, and, and I think... I think it offered us a gift that all of us can can locate ourselves within that indigenous antiquity. That it is, it, it, in a way, and this has still not been fulfilled politically, but it gave us a new way of seeing ourselves. Um, and and I think we're seeing the results of that. Um, there's a whole lot of literature that emerges post Mabo, um, particularly things like Bruce Pascoe's. Dark Emu, which again offers us an insight into Aboriginal society that is far more complex and something that Australians can locate themselves within as well, um, welcomes to country. I mean, the fact that we, we acknowledge country and welcome people to country now, I think grows out of that Mabo judgment in that it makes visible to Australians the, the other map, not the map of Australia, but the map of Aboriginal Australia and Torres Strait Islander Australia, that very complex map of hundreds of nations that I think we all live in now to some degree. And we do that and we acknowledge that with our welcomes to country. Um, you know, we've seen a greater consciousness around our history, although we're still a long way from truly telling that story, but there's a greater consciousness around that now as well. So, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. What it did to the Australian myth, what it did to the Australian narrative, what it has done for us as Australians to give us a deeper connection 
to this country, what it did in making visible that other map of Australia, I think has just been a precious gift to all of us um, and, and a challenge to us that now how do we take the next step? How do we make that who we are as a people? How do we deliver that? How do we make good on what Ma the world that Mabo has revealed to us? How do we bring justice to that world? That's our challenge. And that's the opportunity that we have going forward for our generation and the you know our kids below us coming through. We get a chance to yeah. create create this Australia for all of us uh, because yeah. of what happened, which is really exciting. It, it, really it is exciting, Osha, and and it's and we're doing it in different ways. We're doing it. You no, know, I've never believed that a nation is our laws. I believe that a nation is a story. You know, and I, and I think we are telling a different story about ourselves now. Even the awareness around Australia Day in January 26, you know, that's a contested space, but there's a greater awareness around that now. We see it in our music. We see it in our art. We see it on our screens. We're telling a different story about ourselves. As I say, we do it with welcomes to country. There is a greater depth of our national identity now as a result of that um, and the challenge now is to bring justice to that and I think it is it is an exciting thing and we will change it because we change who we are as a people. Politics won't do it. Politics sits downstream from culture. We change who we are, the politicians will follow and that's that's the job that we're we're doing right now and I think we're doing it in so many different ways. And that's what's really exciting, you know, to me. It, it um, can't come soon enough. And sadly, my people are still dying while we fail to deliver on this justice. But Eddie Marbo gave us an enormous gift. And I think we're all, we're all grateful for that and we're all better for that. Stan, I'm so so grateful we could have a chance to speak with you about this um, before we speak to Dr. Brian Kian Cohen, who's... Uh, yeah, he's he's a fascinating cat, and um, he's yeah. he's an amazing man. And I've had some wonderful conversations with him. And uh, I, in fact, I had the honour of sharing the Marbo oration with him a few years ago um, with Eddie Marbo's family, and you know, uh, all there in attendance. It was it was fantastic. And Brian was one of the first people that I I spoke to all those years ago when I did a story on it. Um, I'd read a a piece of his in a law journal that really um, steered me in the direction of the Marbo case. So he's he's one of the great Australians, you know. Um, he Eddie Marbo. I mean, you know, they are they are the best of us. So yeah, you're you're lucky to have him. <laughs> you're awesome, Stan. Thanks, Hayes, for joining us tonight. Thanks, really appreciate it. Incredible to talk to Stan. There, I think he really understands how powerful storytelling is to who we are as a country, you know, and that, that, that narrative is starting to change. Like my kids come home and tell me stories excitedly about what they've learned about First Nations people and Indigenous culture. Um, and I think that these stories that we're starting to tell ourselves are, are going to be the catalyst for how we see ourselves as a nation, you know, going forward. We're not there yet, like he said, but we're, we're making our way towards it. And I guess a, lo a large part of knowing where we're going is to really, you know, know where we came from 
uh, which is why I'm I'm grateful we can speak with uh, Dr. Brian Keon Cohen QC. He's a member of the Order of Australia, one of the legal team who took the Mabo case all the way to the High Court. He worked on it from day one. He continued to work on native title claims and human rights cases, including stolen generation cases in federal course. He was an adjunct professor at Monash Uni. He's even written a book about his experience. It's called Mabo and the Courts from Islander Tradition to Native Title, a memoir, and you can get it at his website, briankeoncohen.com, B-R-Y-A-N-K-E-O-N-C-O-H-E-N.com. Go and get the book. You can buy it off him right now. James. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brian Keen Cohen. Good evening, Usher. How are you? I'm thrilled. This show is all about trying to, you know, explore the the bits we might have missed from Australian history. A lot of people, of course, they've heard of the Mabo case, but I guess I was just fascinated as to people that, that worked on it. Brian, can we set the table a little bit about before the Mabo case begins and talk a little bit about your studying at university, you, you're wanting to become a lawyer. In those early days, what sort of law are you imagining you want to get involved in? Well, that's a good question. Uh, As a uh, tutor and lecturer at Monash Law School between 1974 and 78, I was interested in legal aid, law reform, what was then called poverty law. I was not interested in commercial tax. Or the exciting stuff. As a tutor at Monash, I put my hand up at a, at a meeting of the Fitzroy Legal Service and and dubbed myself in to prepare the Fitzroy Legal Service's uh, newsletter. So I called it the Fitzroy Legal Service Bulletin and I roneoed it off uh, those old roneo machines in the basement of the law school at Monash. And that developed into the, the uh, Legal Service Bulletin and then developed into the Alternative Law Journal which is still being published today. Who hasn't put out a bit of a little independent work using the office photocopier, Brian? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, I, I, was, I, I, I was dragged into the <laughs> dean's office and asked, what are you doing, Mr. Keon Cohen, uh, are using Monash Law School facilities for a private purpose? <laughs> and I had to explain that, in fact, this was something very well, well worthwhile and I escaped. I was a first-year tutor, very new on the job. That journal was concerned with legal aid, poverty law, and law reform. And I began to publish material on Indigenous issues, criminal issues, uh, the rate of imprisonment, etc., etc. Eddie Marbo hung around James Cook Uni in Townsville, and he he met a lot of really, you know, quite powerful people, and he understood if he was going to ever get the rights to his land, he had to use the law that existed in Australia and get his rights written into the law in Australia. How did you and Eddie first meet? Do you remember the, the moment? Well, the sequence was that in, about, in August 1981, there was a major land rights conference in James Cook University at Townsville, organised by the Student Union, and a number of people spoke. I wasn't there, but including in the speakers was Eddie Mabo and a, a guy called Reverend Dave Passy, who subsequently became one of the five plaintiffs in the Mabo case. Also present was Greg McIntyre, who became our instructing solicitor, then of the Aboriginal Legal Service in Townsville, and also Barbara Hocking, a junior barrister of the Victorian Bar, who had done a master's thesis on the question of Indigenous land rights, and she also gave a paper at that conference. 
they had a little meeting uh, during the conference and decided that they should take a test case to the High Court on the question of land rights and that Eddie Mabo and Dave Passy and the Merriam people, the people of the island of Murr in the eastern Torres Straits from Murray Island, were a good vehicle for a test case. What was it about the Murray Islanders that, that made them the case that lawyers at the time thought, this is the one we're going to get behind? Well, firstly, they were very committed and enthusiastic clients, right? You need a client to run a case. <laughs> uh, that's not to say that they were of one mind. Land rights on Murray Island is, has been always very disputed, boundary disputes, inheritance disputes, and the Mabo trials saw those sorts of disputes arise. So, firstly, they were very concerned about asserting their rights against the Queensland government, who at that time was proposing a thing called a dogget, Deeds of Ground in Trust, which would have wiped away their reserve status and put at risk their continuing councils and way of life on Murray Island and islands right across the Torres Straits. So they were enthusiastic, committed clients. Secondly, you have to remember that Murray Island, along with the whole of the Torres Straits, was not colonised until 100 years after colonisation of the east coast of the mainland, i.e. 1788. We therefore thought, well, this is all news to us, but logic seems to suggest that they would have suffered much less acculturation or cultural damage, much less devastation of their rights and interests in land than, say, the eastern seaboard of Australia, which had been so heavily dispossessed, so brutally dealt with such that it was would be very difficult for them to bring evidence about their traditional way of life. That was a nice contrast between a mission at Yaraba, which is a conglomeration of the remnants of various traditional owner groups all brought together under the protection era and all subject to the appalling laws of the Bjorki-Peterson government, as compared to the Torres Straits and including Murray Island, which, remember, is on the very eastern fringe of the Torres Straits. It's a long way away. It takes you two days to get there from Melbourne. Playing Melbourne Cairns, playing Cairns Thursday Island overnight, a little ferry to Horn Island, which is just south of Thursday, get on a light plane, do the milk run, hop, 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 end up at Murray Island. Two days. Brian, you mentioned the Bjorki-Peterson government. I grew up in Queensland and I'm often punishing Jimmy on this show with tales of you don't know how bad it was. We as Australians, we tend to forget that apartheid, South African apartheid, was based on Queensland's racial separation laws. It was a brutal, brutal, brutal place. Oh, oh it was. Knowing you'd be going up against them, it was a fiefdom. He was, Bjorki-Peterson was this incredibly powerful person in the state. What made you go, yeah, this is... Possibly unwinnable. This is a humongous challenge, but I don't give it a shot. And what did you do when they then tried to go around the back door and put another law in in the middle of it all? Well, firstly, it was an obvious injustice that demanded every effort to remedy it. It was staring you in the face that this was a brutal regime and that the law of Australia was seriously out of kilter with the equivalent laws of other former British colonies. And with faith in the justice system, as it difficult and often unjust as it is, and with faith in the High Court, I had no difficulty uh, giving it my full attention. 
You have to remember that the equivalent of the Mabo case, the change in the law, whereby Australian common law was for the first time declared to include the proposition that it recognised, subject to proof, traditional rights and interests in land based on Indigenous customs and traditions. Those common law principles established in America, in the United States, in the American Supreme Court in 1823, in New Zealand Supreme Court in 1847, and in Canada in 1973. So Australia was way behind, and in many respects, e.g. treaties, still is. You mentioned the two-day trip. You mentioned that it was quite a long way to get to Murr Island and to the the Murray Islands, yet while the case was being tried, the entire court travelled to hear evidence from people who were quite old, quite frail. What was it like for some of those people who had, you know, never been to this part of what, you know, we have called Australia, you know? What was it like to seeing the looks on their faces to be exposed to, oh, right, there's a fish trap, there's a dugong spear, you know? What was that like? Well, the case took 10 years. We commenced the proceedings in the original jurisdiction of the High Court. It was then referred to a trial judge, Justice Martin Moynihan of the Queensland Supreme Court. The trial was spread over over three years because in the middle of it, we had to face up to the Queensland's law, an act of the Queensland Parliament, which said in one page, if any traditional rights have survived in the Torres Straits, they're hereby retrospectively annulled back to 1879 without compensation, full stop. So we sat around Ron Caston's table in his chambers in the city and said to each other, expletive, 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 this rotten Queensland government Look what they've done. If this is a good enforceable law, end of Mabo, we can all go home. So we made a hard decision. We challenged that law in the High Court as contrary to the Racial Discrimination Act 1975, uh, legislated by, of course, the Whitlam government. But for that law, no Mabo. But therefore, we abandoned the trial of facts being heard in Brisbane went up to the High Court over a three-year period and won that case 4-3. That's as close as you can get. But for that decision, end of Mabo. So, come back to your question. We then went back to Brisbane three years later, now 1989, and said to the trial judge, Your Honour, we'd like you to visit Murray Island to hear evidence on their country, common practice now in native title claims, and to hear elderly people who cannot travel to Brisbane to give evidence in the Queensland Supreme Court in George Street in Brisbane. He said, after a lot of argy-bargy, okay, Mr. Kankan. So the judge, his associate, court transcription staff, Queensland solicitors and barristers, me plus Eddie plus Greg McIntyre plus Barbara Hopping, all flew and we had three days of hearings on Murray Island and we had another day of hearings on Thursday Island. And in my book, here it is, my book, Mabo Life of an Islander Man, available on my website through PayPal, there are photos of the judge and the witnesses travelling around the island, looking at, at various traditional features like trees as boundary markers. Trees fall over, don't they? Big dispute, exactly where is the boundary? Been going on for hundreds of years. 
The judge was very pleased to be there. Uh, he mentioned that it was very beneficial to him to understand the evidence. The Murray Islanders were brilliant. They made him feel welcome. What, of course, was also going on was that many of the Islanders, unlike Eddie Mabo, had, had not escaped the very, uh, the very seriously uh, paternalistic and controlling uh, laws and administrative practices of the Queensland government so that every aspect of their lives was controlled. Who you marry, whether you could go and get a job somewhere else, whether you could come back. Eddie Mabo was barred from going back to Murray Island to attend his father's funeral because he was considered a political agitator. But the plaintiffs and others had escaped that mental control and that mental conditioning such that they were able to stand up against the power of the Queensland Department of Aboriginal Islander Affairs, which was overwhelming, overwhelming. Do you imagine also that the plaintiffs, including Eddie Marber, who continued on with the case, were also continuing to feel or have that pressure applied upon them, that they continued to um, persevere? Yes, I'm sure of it. Two people pulled out. Dave Passy and his elder brother, Sam Passy, was a very important witness. One came back, Dave Passy, he reconsidered and stood against this Queensland pressure. And the remaining plaintiffs, by the end of the 10 years, there were three left, Eddie Mabo, Dave Passy and James Russ. The other two of the original five had died. And I'm sure they, they had to stand up against a lot of pressure, both on the island and in Townsville where, where uh, Eddie Mabo and his family lived. For example, when I visited Eddie Mabo at his home in Townsville, he had a rifle inside the front door. Why? Because there were cars cruising up and down outside his street. He was abused in the street, as was his wife, Benita, who was a wonderful lady, and he had nine, ten, ten children to look after. When Eddie Mabo died, for example... There was a three-year period of traditional mourning and then there was a tombstone opening at the cemetery at Townsville. It was a beautiful tombstone. It's a photo in the book and it was a wonderful ceremony where Paul Keating's wife attended hundreds of people there. That very night, that tombstone was desecrated with horrible, horrible words, Nazi swastika, all painted over, and a bust of Eddie Mabo, a sculpture of him, was knocked off. This is the kind of attitudes they had to face up to and cope with during the litigation and after his death. What about you, Brian? What about you, your family? It's an incredibly high-profile case. I'm sure that the trillion-dollar mining companies are, like, keeping a close eye on how this is going to end up. What about you? Did you feel any pressure? Did your family feel any pressure? Yes, there was pressure. One form of pressure was the lack of of funding. (laughs) We got legal aid after about a a year down the track, so I can't complain. But, you know, it's legal aid. It's it's not like acting for companies or in tax matters or corporate takeovers. Also, there are, of course, a variety of views about the professionalism, let alone the utility of pursuing test cases like this. And from time to time in the lifts of Owen Dixon Chambers, some of my more conservative colleagues would have a go at me. I remember one guy said, oh, Brian, this case won't do your career any good. And there's a senior guy at the bar, a very hierarchical building, 
And I'm I'm a junior guy at the bar of about two years call, and this kind of pressure is applied. That kind of criticism was nothing compared to the sort of brutal intervention of the Bjorki-Peterson bureaucrats. And further to that, some criticism and opposition from some of the senior people on Murray Island itself directed towards the plaintiffs and their supporters. You believe in your clients and in your doing your professional best for your clients. That's why you're there. That's your role. You talk about the case taking 10 years, and that's countless hours you must have spent poring over case files, talking to plaintiffs, interviewing people, navigating through the legal system. Do you think people understand just the personal investment of time and blood and sweat and tears that it takes to create this sort of change? Well, those that have been involved in similar sorts of cases, yes. Ten years is exceptionally long. People in the refugee arena, for example, know the sorts of stresses and strains their clients face up to. I've done a number of refugee review applications in the Federal Court and the High Court, and the stresses on those clients are appalling. But the stress and strain on lawyers in the native title arena is nothing compared to the stress and strain suffered by traditional owner claimants. One of the real criticisms, not of the Mabo case, but the Native Title Act and the structures it created, the stress on plaintiffs is on native title traditional owners is enormous. They have a very serious burden of proof to overcome, which is written into the Native Title Act, Section 223. They have to prove continuing connection back to sovereignty. They have to prove essentially the same customs and traditions being practised today as were practised by their ancestors back at the time of sovereignty. But the stress on the traditional owners is terrible. It really is a great source of criticism of the Act that these claims take far too long and very often the elders die. They are the best witnesses. The best evidence is in their heads. They very often pass away before the claim is finalised. These days, I think the average length of time for a claim that's settled, let alone that's negotiated, let alone goes to a hard-fought adversarial trial, is seven or eight years. The day must have been incredible. June 3rd, 1982. The highlight of the day had to have been when you contacted the people back on the island to let them know that they'd won. Do you remember telling them? Oh, sure. I can tell you a little story about that. I took judgment and the judges hand down their reasons. I find for the plaintiffs, I published my reasons accordingly. Hands down the piece of paper to his associate. And as that came across the court, I suddenly realised, goodness gracious me, or expletive, 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 we've won. So that was a great moment. And I then went upstairs to the sixth level of the High Court building in Canberra where council's chambers are, and I got on the phone to the only phone number I knew or in existence on Murray Island, the public phone booth outside the council chamber. And I said, hello, hello, it's Brian. Who's that? And it was a lady. I forget her name. And I said, do you remember this Mabo case? And she said, yes. 
I'm ringing you from the High Court. The judges have had just down, handed down their decision and you have won your case. Dropped the phone and I was left dangling in the air while she raced out of the phone booth screaming and yelling and I'm told they had a wonderful party on Murray Island that night and I wasn't <laughs> invited. Benita Marbo and her daughter Gail and I think another of one of the children were in a car travelling to Canberra to try to attend the High Court for the handing down of judgment. And she heard it on the radio, in the car radio. So she stopped. They had a great celebration on the side of the on the roadside, turned around and started driving all the way back to Townsville. Good Lord. <laughs> of course, uh, Eddie had passed a few months prior to that. Was it a very bittersweet moment, knowing that how long he had fought to see that day and not being able to be there? Yes, indeed. Uh, he deserved to be there to see the culmination of, of a great deal of hard work and devotion to this case. I spoke at his funeral in Townsville and, and paid tribute to his drive, to his intelligence, to his ability to explain custom and tradition to us whitefellow lawyers so that we could try to understand the best way of presenting the argument he went and found the witnesses out of the community to give evidence of custom and tradition and rights to land. And perhaps the great tragedy is he claimed 36 of the 46 individual blocks of garden land, village land, offshore fish traps and areas 10k out on the Great Barrier Reef. The other plaintiffs claimed four or five blocks each. This was not claimed to the whole of the Murray Islands in a communal sense. This started as five plaintiffs claiming individual blocks spread around the three islands and the offshore seas and reefs. So he was claiming 36 blocks and the trial judge disbelieved him on everything. I think that was harsh. I've said so, but that was his decision. We decided, we gave Eddie advice. We don't think he should appeal because that will hang us up through the courts for another five years and we don't have the dollars and it will divert us from going back to the High Court on the moderate success of two of the plaintiffs, James Rice and Dave Passy, who succeeded in a rather vague way to two or three blocks only. Cross-examination was fierce. We lost all of the 46, lost about 43. What was very upsetting, I imagine, for him, and it was, was that in the High Court we put no submissions about Eddie Marbo at all and his claims because he had lost that trial. All the submissions were put on behalf of the two successful plaintiffs, Dave Passy, who was an Anglican minister as well as a traditional man, and James Rice, former school teacher. Eddie Marbo, to his great credit, agreed uh, that the bigger picture was more important than his personal claims. And when Ron Caston and I advised him, look, I don't think we should appeal. It's your instructions that we advise you not to appeal this rejection by the trial judge. Let's go straight to the High Court with these findings and argue the ultimate points of law. He accepted that. That's an incredible thing to do and it's beyond humbling to hear that someone so passionate, and I've seen lectures of his, I can see how passionate he is and how 
knowledgeable he is and how easily he can communicate with only just a few words the importance yeah. of his connection to his country to a whole room full of, of yeah. white uni students, to be honest. When you look back at the case, when you look at the precedent that it's set, it's nearly 30 years since it's happened. Has it done in this country what it could do for this country or what do you think? The answer is yes and no, and the answer might depend on who you talk to. From my point of view, the Mabo decision has changed the, the ball game in terms of recognition of First Nations continuing traditions and cultures in respect not only of land but also governance. In respect of land, it dramatically changed the pre-existing accepted rules of the common law and for the first time, subject to proof, subject to evidence, recognise that custom and tradition is a foundation of rights to land just as a freehold or leasehold title is. So it achieved a very major change in the principles of property law in this country, which all governments had to respond to. Brian, as someone who's given most of their life to fighting for causes that you believe in, what would you say to people who want change but they're disillusioned or they're disheartened or they're exhausted or they're unable to see how change is possible. What would you say to them? I would say keep faith in the basic sense of justice and humanity of the Australian community and of our legal system. I would say it's tough. It can be just very, very traumatic and one can be full of despair. But as with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, you must keep going because unless you keep going, the forces of this country won't keep going for you. And when you keep going, the younger generations will respect your integrity and your continuing search for a fair go, and increasingly they will support you. Don't get despondent because the baby boomers, like me, are a bunch of old farts who continue to maintain these racist, white Australia attitudes from the past. Forget them, they're hopeless, including half of the politicians in Canberra and around the, and around the states and territories. Look to the younger generation. The younger generations are increasingly driving the agenda, and good luck to them, and I do have confidence in their futures. In your opinion, in a career of working in this area, the area of justice for Indigenous peoples of, of countries and people who have been affected by colonialism, what would you say to people who are afraid of a treaty? What do you say to people of, you know, who might be reluctant of like wh where this might end up? Firstly, it's not what I might say. These people need to talk to Aboriginal and Islander people in this country. Actually sit down and have the privilege of the sort of experience I've had through my professional life and dealing with very decent, highly intelligent, highly motivated, community-minded, responsible leaders in this sector of the Australian community, 3% of the Australian community. And I would say to those frightened people, what are you afraid of? This country should be proud and honoured and privileged to have in its midst the oldest surviving culture on the planet, 60,000 plus years. We should be very excited about and very supportive of. Brian, is 
an incredible honour to have you on the show. While we were talking, I went and bought your book. So you said you got about 100 left. You've got about 99 left now. BrianKeonCohen.com is where you can buy his book, A Marble Memoir, Island Custom to Native Title. So incredible that you took the time to speak to us tonight. And um, thank you so much for giving us your time, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to chat to you. Thanks, Brian. I'm not going to lie, James. There's a few times there speaking to him that I was kind of moved to tears. Listening to someone with that much heart speak with that much power, someone with that much humanity speak so confidently knowing basically how he can use the laws of the country to push for the human thing to be done. He's an extraordinary dude and, you know, he I think knew very early on that he wanted to use his interest in the law to advocate for change for the dispossessed, the disenfranchised, for the environment. And he spent most of his life doing that. And what's powerful about that on so many levels is that a lot of us don't realise what it takes to really create change. Might sign a petition, might go to a march, but there are people in this country and around the world who have given their lives to a cause. Not just a couple of hours here and there, not just sign a petition, have realised there is injustice and decided to give the best years of their life to making a better world. For many of us, that is really hard to get our heads around, especially these days when everything is kind of instantaneous. And most people won't know his name. Most people would have never heard of him. And so the people who do this do so for very little money. I mean, he was getting legal aid for no acclaim, for no plaudits. They do so because they believe in justice, they believe in equality, they believe in fairness, and they will give everything of themselves to do that. It's an extraordinary idea and it puts into sort of context, you know, how little sometimes we give for what we believe in. You mean I can't just like and share? I can't just screenshot and reshare it? But I did it to Instagram and Twitter. I mean, I don't think it hurts, but it's important to understand that's not how change occurs. And I think he sort of mentioned Black Lives Matter, you know, and and there are a lot of people who were activating on social media and that probably assisted. But, you know, the the real work happens from people who are prepared to get their hands dirty for long lengths of time and deal with the detractors and deal with the objections and, and deal with butting their heads till it bleeds against the the resistance of the status quo. But isn't that the, the the status quo has put those defences up there? Like it's a system that has been designed to protect itself, so it is too fucking hard for just a regular punter to go, no, nah, this sucks. It takes someone of the education and the will and the drive like Brian and the, and the team that he worked with to just go, no, nah, we have to keep going. Yeah, it's a, an extraordinary story. Who, who would do that? Would you give 10 years of your life to something? I'm very passionate about a lot of these causes, but would I give 10 years of my life to something? And most of us come up wanting, and that is understandable. The thing about 
this and cases like it, whether it's uh, civil right, the civil rights movement or um, the environmental movement, is that most people who've tried to advocate for change you know, do so and eventually get burnt out and they get disillusioned and they get tired and they get exhausted and they've got to sort of, like, I can't do it anymore. And the thing about that is that politicians, big corporations, uh, moneyed interests know that know that eventually you will get tired and wear that worn out because they don't they don't get tired <laughs> there is an endless supply of lobbyists and there's an endless supply of politicians who are on the side of big business but um yeah the people who are prepared to take them on and realize that there is a way forward just through sheer patience know-how and resistance are absolute heroes i remember you telling me once and it it really reframed things for me man you said you're gonna have to let go of this idea that some problems can be solved within your lifetime that's gonna take longer that was hard for me to accept yeah you have to appreciate the the pace that some things need to go at it's really hard but it's real Mm. and not be disheartened by that yeah. As long as you are pushing in the right direction, you've just made it easier for the next guy who comes along. And, and I think that's powerful to remember as well. We don't all have to be Brian, Key and Cohen and give 10 years of our life or Eddie Marbo or any one of the incredible lawyers or activists or Indigenous fighters who made this movement what it is. But... Doing nothing, really, it's it's not really an option if you want to advocate for a better world. I know it's late at night, man, but I, I, I love doing this show with you because I just love hearing the way you think about things and I'm... It, it makes me feel better. It makes me, makes me panic less. <laughs> chip, chippity, chip away. You chip, chip, chippity, chip away. That's what you do. Chip away. And, yeah, you're right. Sometimes you've got to attach the, the, the requirement or the need or the desire or the picture you have about what you want to see in your lifetime and detach that from the efforts you put in to making it happen. I'm gr- so grateful that we got a chance to speak to him and let people hear him. What a his. legend, hey? What a legend. Yeah. I just In the middle of that, I got all teary, especially when he started talking about the environment, just knowing right now there are people exactly like him fighting like fuck, fighting so hard. Um, those two huge cases that happened the other week with Shell and ExxonMobil, for example, there's people like him who have just been going hardcore for so long to make that sort of stuff happen. Like for every coal-loving, gas-plant-buying boomer, I'd like to think there's a bloke like that. Amen. And you can't solve it all. You can't fix it all. You can't fix it all. But you find one thing that moves you, one thing that you are not prepared to walk past Mm. and yeah give it a little shove in any way you can you can uh, email us idleaustralians at gmail.com thank you so much for getting in touch with us and uh, in huge news we might have some very 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 big news next week but there's going to be a live show there's actually going to be a live show James we're going to be in the same room at the same time 
At this point, I think it won't even be in Sydney, but we'll get to see what happens, what the spicy cough's going to give us. I'm not ready! <laughs> Neither am I. I have... <laughs> But, yeah, hopefully news of a live show coming soon. If you want to get in touch with us, idolaustralians at gmail.com. This episode, of course, our fantastic producer, Bree Steele, who found Dr. Brian Keehan Cohen. Mike Mills, toe hider, who made all the music. He streams on Twitch all the time. He's fantastic. Thanks, Daryl Misson, for the audio production. And James Matheson for being the best ever. All right, I'll see you next week.